Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Slash Filmcast After Dark, the after show where we talk about a variety of random topics that didn't make it into the main show. Now, we had said we're going to talk about Citizen Kane today, and we are going to do that. But before we get to that, folks, I want to talk to you about another movie about a media magnate, and that is You've Got Mail. Have you guys mm. seen You've Got Mail? Yeah. Yeah, no, I lived through the 90s. <laughs> I was there. Yeah. Uh, You've Got Mail, a widely beloved 1998 romantic comedy directed by Nora Ephron, starring Meg Ryan and... and uh, Tom Hanks. Uh, now, those of you who listen to the podcast know that I am in a COVID bubble with our friend Carter. And what I mean by bubble is the three of us see each other indoors and no one else. Like we don't interact with any, well, we interact with people like outdoors, but we don't like interact with anyone else indoors. We, it's like a fairly self-contained bubble. Mm -hmm. And so we watch a lot of movies together. And my friend Carter, who's in our bubble, has seen You've Got Mail over 10 times. And she wanted us to watch it as a bubble. And I thought, hey, why not? I'm already on the couch. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's let this little thing did, Little did she know this would pop the bubble. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it definitely has brought the bubble to, to its breaking point. Now, first of all, I want to say that Carter's love for this film is... Uh, cannot be questioned. Sure. She, a few years ago, uh, she had a Thanksgiving celebration in which she did a You've Got Mail themed menu. You know how Ooh. some people do like these these uh, movie themed menus and like the the menu items are kind of puns yeah. mm. around the, the things that happen in the movie, right? Yeah. The email sandwich, I get it. Yeah. I I have a in my hands as I'm as we're recording you can hear it. In my hands, I have a laminated copy of the menu that she made. <laughs> Um, for this Thanksgiving celebration based on You've Got Mail from many years ago. So, Jeff, you, you seem to be a man who appreciates wordplay. Greatly. I do indeed. So I'm, I'm gonna excited read you, about this. I'm going to read you some of these menu items. Now, here's I hope the thing there's I'm, like escargot on the menu so you can have You've Got Snails. Mm, okay, no? so here's what there is. is There's You've Got Kale salad. Oh, there you go. You've Got Kale. Good, it's very good. good. Which is kale, red pepper flakes, pecorino, and pistachios. Very delicious. Um, do you think we should meet M E A T? <laughs> do you think we should meet? I love it. Uh, turkey breast with sage and mustard. And, uh, let's see. What else do we got here? Uh, okay. Uh, probably the best one on here is, um, in, in the film, it's a, it's a, it's a point of contention. What, uh, how to spell Joe Fox's last name. Cause he spells it out at the bookstore. So it's F O extra cheesy mac and cheese. F O extra cheesy mac and cheese. Are there any uh, Tom Shanks or Eggs Ryan? Mm. No, no, no. It's only in the universe of the film, Jeff. We oh, don't, sorry. We don't Pardon break me. the fourth Pardon wall me. here. Um, uh, here's the thing that's amazing is like these references, I don't even think people know what they like, will remember the film well enough to know what they are. So there's a rooftop killer relish. You guys remember? <laughs> no. At one point in the film, yeah. Meg Ryan suspects that her person she's seeing over AOL is the rooftop killer. Oh, right. Who is a serial killer. At what point do they go to Seattle? Uh, that's a different movie. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. It's the other one. Um, Dave Chappelle's Chanterelle Mushroom Toasts. <laughs> uh, I, don't know if you guys, I don't know if you guys remember, 
Dave uh, Chappelle is in this film. Yeah. I he thought is, you uh, weren't breaking the fourth wall. Yeah, I thought it was not only in the context. Can we at least get some Greg Kinnears of corn? <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, here's what I've learned is you need to help Carter write menus. Um, <laughs> this is this is what's going to come of this. Okay. Uh, you've got mail, guys. Is So so that, let's move on from the menu. Let's talk about the movie real quick. You've got mail is one of the most upsetting romantic comedies I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> So you guys have both seen this movie because it's based on an AOL catchphrase. <laughs> this is this is a movie in which I don't know if you guys remember Tom Hanks uh, is the owner of like a Barnes Noble esque company, or he's like uh-huh. the head of the Barnes Noble esque company, and his bookstore moves into the neighborhood and destroys Meg Ryan's bookstore. Right, mm. <laughs> the one she barely cares to run. Yeah. No, 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 no. Well, again, I'm I'm here to remind you of the details of You Got Mail, which is Meg Ryan's bookstore is one that her mom gave to her yeah, Mm. and that she was looking forward to passing on to her daughter. Mm -hmm. And when the bookstore closed because of Tom Hanks's actions, uh, she said it was like her mom was dying all over again, is what she said. Mm -hmm. This is what Tom Hanks, romantic love interest in You've Got Mail did to Meg Ryan's character. And by the way, he didn't do it nicely either. He was kind of a raging asshole the entire time. <laughs> and then, um, at, at the same time, as you may remember, he's carrying out a online romance with this woman, right? Um, but she doesn't know that the person that she's in love with is Tom Hanks, the guy who destroyed her business. Uh, he then finds out this information. He finds out that she's Meg Ryan, like the person he's co- corresponding with is Meg Ryan, doesn't tell her uses his superior knowledge to gather more compromising information on her and worm his way into her life, manipulate her, gaslight her, and they end up together and it's supposed to be a happy ending of a movie? Yeah. Really, really upsetting, guys. Really upsetting. Anyway, just wanted to uh, call that out. <laughs> that's, your, that's your entire. That's you it. Think? That was just. The, it's just an upsetting yeah. movie. Is the theme. The nineties the... were were pretty fucking wild. Yeah, courtship in uh, the nineties well, not great. I, I guess I'm saying. I guess I'm saying that like, you know, this is kind of like a Love Actually, where th- this is a lot of like <laughs> my my wife said to me, you know, oh my gosh, Love Actually, incredible film, right? Like it's it's going to teach you about the power of love and Christmas, and then you watch it, and. In today's lens, it is really, really upsetting. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like people in the film engage in all kinds of behavior that in the modern day we would consider stalkerish. We would consider uh, abuser-like. You know what I mean? Um, but this is just what was normalized in the 90s and the 80s and some of the 70s as well. You know what I mean? Um, so anyway... Yeah. The further back you go, the crazier things get. But it is wild, like how even the standards in the '90s, 20 years from now, you know, 20 years ago, um, yeah, were completely different. I guess, yeah. Jeff, do you do you have any associations with You've Got Mail? Do you have any opinion on You've Got Mail? I, I'm assuming no, but I'm just I just need to ask. I would be hard pressed to. Rem- I didn't even rem- I, now that you mentioned the bookstore thing that <laughs> that I re- recall that. Uh, now that you mentioned be, it, it was extremely upsetting. No, you know? I I would be hard pressed to recall any details. I remember being. Uh, excited to see this based on my uh, affection for Sleepless in Seattle, right? This was the, yeah, the team, yeah. creative team. It was a pseudo sequel, right? Not actually a sequel, but creative team reteaming to do another romantic comedy. And I remember being wildly disappointed by this movie. Um, 
I'm a there huge are, fan of Nora Ephron. I think she's, you know, she was brilliant. Um, and, uh, you know, charming actors. And I, I genuinely enjoyed Sleepless in Seattle. But man, this movie seemed, even at the time, even contemporary in 1998, it was forgettable to me, I think. There are some good things about the movie. Uh, Greg Kinnear is great in this film. Uh, and it, like, ha- plays his role with, with delightful aplomb. One of his uh, first, say, like one of his first things, right? He was like the talk soup guy, and then was making the transition to being an actor at that time, right? Yeah, and I, this was—he was great in this. Not only was he great in this film, guys, he is arguably a better match for Meg Ryan than Tom Hanks. But because of the plot, <laughs> because of the plot, they don't love each other. This is like how you know in the office, like Jim uh, is trash. You know what I mean? Jim Halpert is a terrible human being, but like Pam ends up with him. Really, she should have ended up with the sound guy, Russ Hanneman from Silicon Valley. Do you guys know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah anyway. man. Yeah. <laughs> Do you really, Jeffrey? You're just, you're just humoring me, aren't you? I'm just humoring you. That's fine. That's fine. Um, also, the soundtrack is very good. Uh, so anyway, you've got mail. Really mixed bag. Oh, actually. Um, yeah. Okay. Nope. I'm done. Yeah, the first, the first, so the first Greg Kinnear... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, it was Sabrina. Remember the Harrison Ford movie, the remake, Sabrina? Mm. Yeah. 95. Yeah. Uh, Sidney Pollack directed that. Oh, my God. Uh, so that was, so that was you know, a few years before. That was really the one where it's like, oh, he, the Talk Soup guy is going to be an actor now. And, uh, and then he did, um, uh, and then he did, where did it go? I lost it. And then he did as good as it gets, right? Mm, uh, Academy yeah. Award winning as Which good as it great. gets, and and then people. you've yeah. got Mail, uh, and then Mystery Men. So then he would he was kind of firmly established as being a a movie guy at that. But I remember Sabrina was the big one, where it's like, oh, somebody cast Greg Kinnear as an actor. Yeah, and I, I think he's really solid, and I, I think he's had a pretty solid career as well. He's great overall. Yeah, yeah, I worked with him. In, in what, Jeff? The very short-lived show called Rake was a remake oh, of a yeah. Australian show. Yeah, 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 yeah. And did a, I did a part in that show. Well, nice. speaking of movies in which people own media companies and are unaware of the impact that those media companies may have on others and or don't care because they're very self-aggrandizing narcissists, let's talk about Citizen Kane, guys. Yeah. Uh, so Citizen Kane's movie... We all haven't seen it in a while, and I asked Salt to rewatch it this week. It is almost 80 years old. Mm-hmm. Has been listed by Sight and Sound and numerous other uh, lists as like the greatest film of all time on multiple occasions. And so I guess my question, Jeff, let's start with you, go to Davindra, is on this reviewing, this rewatching, uh, what did you take away from it? Do you still think it holds up? Uh, do you think it's worthy of that title? Absolutely. I was shocked at how much I loved watching Citizen Kane. Shocked. I mean, I watched it in college, right? Everybody does, I think, especially if you're, you know, learning about any film studies class. Uh, and, and I appreciated it then. I did. Uh, I remember liking the movie then. But since then, I've spent... <laughs> More years than I'd like to admit, you know, over a decade, more like almost two, um, 
<laughs> professionally reviewing movies, right? Uh, this is what I do is I talk about movies and I've seen a whole lot more movies in the intervening years since, since college than I had before college, but up to that point. And I think viewing it now, I could not believe what I was looking at. It is an extraordinary work. It is the idea that Orson Welles was 24 years old when he made it is unbelievable. And I know I'm not saying anything <laughs> insightful that it hasn't been said a million times before, but it's just not like any other movie that came before it. He, you know, he's, he's said on numerous occasions uh, that he did things that nobody else would done, had done just because he didn't know not to, right? He yeah. broke all the rules because he didn't know there were rules. He was this newbie filmmaker that came in and was all, you know, full of confidence, but also, you know, he attributes his confidence to just ignorance. He, he said, I didn't have anybody telling me no. He had this remarkable contract that said you had complete control and he hired people mostly that had never done movies before either. He had a cameraman that was really um, experienced, but, uh, but also offered him the ability to, to sort of do anything he wanted. And he just started shooting the movie in ways that no one else had done it before and still look contemporary today. Yes. And the thing that, the thing that struck me, I mean, there's so much to talk about with Citizen Kane, like the performances are awesome and the dialogue bits and how it's shot with these long takes. And it's all theater people, right? At the end of the movie has this wonderful thing where it's like, you know, we're so pleased to introduce you to these actors who are making their film debut, which is such an amazingly charming thing to do at the end of a movie. You just don't see that ever happening in the world, but it's clearly like his theater troupe. Like he'd done a lot of theater. He'd just come off doing Othello and all these amazing, you know, world, um, uh, proclaim, you know, um, he got this high acclaim for all these incredible theater performances. And so he had this troupe of actors that he was very comfortable with. And so he got all these like 20 something people to do old age makeup, which by the way, how is the old age makeup in the forties? Yeah. Look this good. Even today in HD is, I don't how, how understand. How did we get Prometheus's you know, old age makeup, and this existed <laughs> in 1940-something. I, I, I don't amazing. understand. It's I, I, like, to this day, if you didn't tell me that Orson Welles was 24 years old when he played this yeah. character, yeah. I that's not what I would think when I watched this movie. Dude, right? it's like, more convincing than... Um, oh, what's the, just the recent Martin Scorsese film with De Niro? The Irishman. Yeah, the de the de aging in Irishman <laughs> is is very expensive. Cost more than you know twelve times. Probably just that cost twelve times what the entire Citizen Kane cost to make, and uh, it's less convincing than you know. There, there's the one shot. I think there's like one scene where Orson Welles plays his actual age, and it's like amazing. He's like gorgeous and you know young, <laughs> and you're like. What is how is this possible? Yeah and, yeah. and I love how all the dialogue scenes are shot like theater. They're long, big, wide shots with long takes, and the dialogue overlaps and it's rapid and it's it's totally engaging and awesome. And everybody's like on their game. It's so, so great. But then you look at the way that it's shot and where he puts the camera and like shooting it on these crazy low angles a lot to kind of look up at Kane all the time, which is super unflattering to him, but creates this dramatic tension in all these scenes and how he uses light and shadow. 
this is a movie that has to be in black and white that like glorifies black and white the the way light and shadow plays in this movie is incredible and even mank doesn't live up to it like mank that's made with technology that you know has benefited from 80 years of progress i don't think even touches what citizen kane did with light and shadow all the way back then it, the way it plays with contrast the way it 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 lights certain sequences it it is I couldn't believe it. I couldn't. And the level of sort of the way it conveys opulence and the way, mm -hmm. you know, there's a, a shots with Kane in his big empty castle, like, you know, 30 feet away from the person he's talking to in this big echoey empty room. And like the, the audacity to shoot a scene like that. It's genius. It is a work of genius. And I don't think, you know, when I was in college and the professor was like, go watch this work of genius that everyone has decided is a work of genius. You just go, okay, you know, but all these years later coming at it with sort of fresh eyes, it really is a work of genius. It, I was not prepared for how much I reappreciate what that movie is. Yeah. I was really struck by, uh, there's some moments in this movie really took my breath away. Like the, uh, the ending of the movie when there's this kind of, I think it's a crane shot basically where you look over his empire of all the shit that he bought for his house. Yeah. And it's just, it's like, uh, the, the top men scene at the end of Indiana Jones, except like, yeah. it looks like a lot of this stuff was actually props that were there in real life. Yeah. Uh, it's not a matte painting and it's just like, wow, the, just the, the production design, the artistry is, is really incredible. Um, Devendra, curious what your kind of takeaways were on the most recent viewing. Like, did you have Jeff's reaction or, or what did you take away most, uh, or gain the most from your recent viewing of this? I think it's kind of the same thing. Like I hadn't seen this since college as well. It, it is like, yeah, if you take a film course, it is probably one of the films you'll definitely end up seeing. But I think rewatching it, um, you know, it, it reminds me of why it keeps being um, foisted upon every young, new, you know, cinema studies major. Um, because it's, it is fascinating to see like just what he accomplished back then. It's also a movie where I just like, you watch it and you're like, you just, kind of hate Orson Welles because uh, God damn this guy. Like he he's beautiful. He's talented. He, uh, he directed this movie. He wrote this movie or co-wrote this movie uh, stars in this movie. And like, uh, yeah, basically upended a lot of cinema language. Although if you do more read, like if I, I think if you do a lot of like studies around this movie, you'll see like similar techniques, certain things were done in movies yeah, around it, that time. It but was he's combining certainly, them. It yeah, was he was combining, combining them. them. Like, yeah. he was doing the Apple thing, you know, of, like, taking pre-existing stuff and kind of refining it and doing it in a way that we had never really seen before. So I, I think it's a really impressive film, um, and it's really entertaining. It's really funny. And it that's is. something, yeah, yeah I, I kind of forgot. I will say the one, like, the one I actually go back to is Touch of Evil, which I think is phenomenal and a great film noir. Um, but, you know, it, it was really... I guess it was just very illuminating to be reminded of just how important this movie was because it's easy to look back at old films and just be like, ah, oh, well, it's, it, you're just eating your vegetables. Are you just watching this because you have to? Um, whereas I think this film, every time I watch, I get something a little more out of it. So yeah, it, it was, it was a good reminder at the very least. I think the thing that I took away most from this is 
honestly, there feels to me a lot of parallels between Charles Foster Kane and Trump. Yeah. And sure. I know the movie was made before Trump was even born, but uh, there is a scene in this movie where uh, Charles Foster Kane running for a governor uh, and they're trying to decide what the headline is to print on the newspapers. And one of them is like, Charles Foster Kane wins governorship. And the other one is fraud at the polls. Charles yeah. Foster Kane loses. And it's like, yeah. wow. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, it's it, this movie saw it all coming. The idea of what happens when you take a guy who is a master media manipulator uh, and he tries to run for office and loses and like what impact that has on him, how that sets him on a, terrible path we're obviously seeing that in the process of playing out right now in our reality uh but not in our movie reality just in real life (laughs) yeah Uh, and so uh that that part really did strike me this idea of this guy who this tragic figure who built for himself this fortress um and really has no friends uh and just dying old and like all of his friends have betrayed him because they're all like talking to journalists about what's actually happening um and uh it, it's a it's a shakespearean tragic story uh that has just very unfortunate res- resonances with our reality but beyond that i'm also just like wow what an impressive structure for a movie you know uh the idea of hey you have this kind of twist that's going to happen at the end of finding out what rosebud means but um then there's this newsreel footage which you know honestly jeff i was thinking like how is Jeff going to feel about this movie that spoils the entire thing before we even get to watch it? You know, there's this newsreel where it like tells you the story of his life. And then we then see that story play out in dramatic form. Um, well, I don't think, I mean, I don't think that I, the, the, the hook is what is Rosebud. Right. And, right. And that's, that's the spoil. I mean, that's one of the classic all time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I didn't actually think it would bother you, but yeah, I, I mean, that's, that was my, th- it was, it did occur to me. I'm like, I wonder if this bothers Jeff. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the funny thing that I didn't know, maybe you guys did know, I guess it was sort of well-known, but that Mank uh, revealed to me was the, and it's such a brilliant dig. If Mankiewicz really did do it this way is that, supposedly rosebud was what <laughs> uh william foster or no excuse me what uh um william randolph hearst called his mistress's private parts uh and the idea that like the only thing he cared about was rosebud and what is rosebud through this whole movie and like what a like titanic dig like the the most incredible troll job of all time if you know you're Hearst and you go and you watch this movie and the whole movie is like, what is Rosebud? What is Rosebud? And you're just sitting there thinking, I know what Rosebud is, that motherfucker. And then at the end, it's like, no, it's this other thing. God damn, that's hardcore. Like if that's <laughs> if that's the game that he was playing with the script, like that's baller. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess I guess that's true. I, you know, I, I didn't think about it in those terms, but um, but uh, you know, we were talking about in in our conversation about Mank and how. It really, I, I rewatched Citizen Kane after watching Mank, and it really did shade all those conversations that Mankiewicz had with Marion Davies in that film. The Because this portrayal of not Marion Davies, um, what's her name in, in uh, Citizen Kane? Um, Alexander? Is it Susan Alexander? Is that what it is? Oh, uh, you'd, um, you'd have to look. Susan Alexander Kane, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, is so brutal and unflattering right like oh, yeah like if you look back at man conversations you know they have that pleasant little 
conversation sitting on the log, right? About like, you know, hey, I really don't think you should do this, you know? And she's like, well, promise you won't hate me if I do, you know? And she's like, promise you won't hate me if blah, blah, blah. And it's like, then you then I watched Citizen Kane, like literally after Mank, I watched Citizen Kane. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> I, I can't believe that they were talking about it this civilly. Because it is, it yeah. is heartbreaking what yeah. happens she's depicted as a talentless hack it yeah. it's so brutal it, it it like upset me on a visceral level to watch because because she it, it, you know she didn't ask for the life that she was that was foisted upon her you know what i mean right mm-hmm. and it was kind of forced into it and she does get some self-determination at the end when she leaves kane but when they find her she's still not in a good state you know she's still she that that is not a life of triumph that she that susan right, alexander right. in the film lives and so just watching that and then seeing it referred to in Mank is kind of like, oh, <laughs> this oh, it's a fine jape, Mankowitz. You know, like, it's like, <laughs> no, this is like character assassination. Yeah. You know? Um, so uh, anyway, an interesting kind of way of looking at, at Mank is like how the Susan Alexander character is depicted in this film. So um anything else i mean so so i was talking about the structure of this movie and it reminds me of you know uh movies like the prestige and i know this is observations people have probably made already obviously so i'm not saying we're bringing that much revolutionary to this conversation because it's one of the most written about films in all of cinema history but that's the one that most came to mind is is i remember watching christopher nolan's prestige and being so impressed by the intricate journal within a journal structure Mm mm-hmm and that's mm-hmm. kind of how this felt to me is like it's you're you're starting at the end you're flashing back and then you have like in the flashback you have a journal or actually no, you're not flashing back because technically these people are reading about it but they're like when you're reading the journal then you're flashing back and uh uncovering all this information and flashing forward again and just like these these intricate um timelines just laid out before you jumping back and forth in time obviously very similar to the structure of mank itself um it just feels like it laid the groundwork for a lot of movies that would play with time in the future, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Jeff, you seem to be nodding in agreement when I was talking about the, the Trump parallels. Curious if, like, that struck you at all while you're watching it this time? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the scene you referenced with the... <laughs> with Fraud the at the polls? New, yeah, it's just too on the nose. Like, you can, it's undeniable. You can't... <laughs> well, also, the, the rally, just, too. Like, I think the rally was re- really evocative of the like yeah. Trump shouty stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, all of the sort of backroom, um, how he's, uh, you know, it caught with the, <laughs> with the mistress, like all of the, I mean, all of that stuff. And yeah, it, and, it uh, mattered. It mattered back then. Apparently. <laughs> yeah. I guess it mattered back then. Even um, one instance was enough to take down a politician back then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, clearly, yeah, clearly he, he is of an archetype that Trump yes. seems to Im- embody and, and be the epitome of, um, and and it's hard to deny it. Seeing that play a, a, across the, the the grand stage of, of our contemporary lives, you know, it's it's impossible not to think of that. Uh, I think obviously Kane is a much more sophisticated character, right? He's a, clearly a much more intelligent person than than Trump, uh, who seems to only work on instinct alone. Uh, and and I think that what you see with Kane through the course of the film is this gradual compromise where he becomes Trumpian, right? He doesn't start mm-hmm. that way. He starts idealistic and he genuinely wants to improve the world. You know, he's fighting for the little guy all through yeah. the beginning of the movie. That's and a real tragedy. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then, you know, by the end, he is this self-absorbed narcissist who just 
desires love from everyone. And, uh, and we, we find out why, right? We find out the source of that. And I suspect if one did a, a true deep dive into Trump, we would find a similar type of childhood trauma that is, that we've all had to pay for. The entire world has to pay, had to pay for someone not hugging little Trump when he was a boy, you know? I think, um, one of the most chilling stories I've read about Donald Trump um, is he was asked the question. Uh, Donald Trump was asked the question about like what would his father have thought about his run for president, right? <laughs> and this was a this is a few years ago when Trump was seventy years old, and Trump says he would have absolutely allowed me to have done it. <laughs> that, yeah. that is literally the Speaks quote volumes. The York, that is literally the quote in the New York Times. And I just I have spent years thinking about that quote, you know, because yeah. it's just like four to says, be exact. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, it because it just says so much without saying without saying that much. You know what I'm saying? Like it's it says it, yeah, it's it's just striking to think of that that he thought that that was like a the hugest compliment, you know what yeah, I mean? Right. Um. But anyway, we try not to psychoanalyze people on this podcast. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> As we're winding down here, I also wanted to point out um something that uh, I've been quoting from this David Fincher interview over at Vulture that Mark Harris did, which is a great interview, uh, called "Nerding Out with David Fincher," and. Uh, Mark Harris is, you guys all may be aware that Pauline Kael wrote about the authorship of Citizen Kane in a now widely debunked essay. Yeah. yeah. 50,000 word essay, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> and well, uh, Peter Bogdanovich was like famously refuted it right in a op-ed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's the, the, basically the journalistic backing of that, of that essay is in significant question. Um, but, uh, in this interview, uh, Mark Harris quotes from Pauline Kael, and she writes, the director should be in control, not because he's the sole creative intelligence, but only if he is in control can he liberate and utilize the talents of his coworkers, end quote, right? And uh, this is a reference to like Pauline Kael and the auteur theory. And David Fincher responds as follows, quote, Pauline Kael knew a lot about watching movies. What Pauline Kael didn't know about making movies could fill volumes, and I believe ultimately that to the detriment of cinema is the notion that everything is intentioned. This notion that the movie-making process is like NASA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can have an O-ring disaster, but for the most part, you're testing the welds, the bolts, the electrical, and then when it gets off the launch pad, you're going, yep, that's what we intended to do. Mm. The movie business is not like that. The movie business is an incredibly couture boutique storytelling venture and every single designer at the head of his house works in a different way you're stitching those garments onto bodies up to the last 45 seconds before that person walks that runway it's a shit show an incredibly chaotic surface it's not cold and it's not calculable it's a warm wet art end quote god that's beautiful so good yeah, yeah. and i think that Sir, I will say this certainly when we when we started this podcast, Devendra, um, with Adam Quigley many many years ago, and then you know this is even before Jeff Kanata signed on uh, the show was uh, that like as shorthand I, we would often refer to all the decisions 
in a movie as though the director made them, right? Sure, yeah. And yeah. as time has gone on, and uh, for me, speaking for myself, personally learning more about the movie industry and how movies get made, you realize how movies are, you know, uh, I think um, David Sandberg has put out a really good uh, movie about this, the uh, filmmaker behind Shazam. You know, filmmaking is a is it problem solving exercise? Yes. If you're solving a set of problems, storytelling all, problems, technical problems. I would right? submit all art is. Yeah. And uh, it's not like, Hey, here is a uh, schematic. Let's go build it. It's like, Oh, we are, we're just constantly bombarded by all these problems that you need to solve in as rapidly and as creatively as possible. Um, figuring out how to get the light to hit right, figuring out how to get this person's wardrobe to look the right way, you know, figuring out how to make sure scheduling. that scheduling, scheduling, yeah. <laughs> how to make the story beat land in the right way. You know, like all these things go, do into we have enough light to do this right by today? Is there? Yeah. And it's like, and it's like, let's say you don't have enough light, then it's like, Oh, well let's rewrite the scene so that we can, that it yeah. still makes sense, you know? Sure, sure. And, uh, and so often, um, there is a temptation from, uh, critics like Paul and Kale and uh, and other people to speak about movies as though they they emerge fully formed when in fact they are barely stapled onto the model as the model like rushes out to the runway you know as uh, <laughs> as David Fincher describes there in that quote so uh, just uh, basically after watching Mank watching Citizen Kane I did quite a bit of reading about this and that was one of the quotes that stuck <laughs> out is yeah um, and certainly something that's kind of kind of um, brought up by the movie Mank right is is how much of that was made by or like it, it is a legit question because a director makes so many decisions about how a movie looks and sounds and feels and how it's structured. Um, so these are all questions something Mank, Mank didn't really deal with though, which is another thing I found it's true, kind yeah. of surprising. R- yeah, you have that one question. conversation. That's it. Right. Right. Raises the question. Doesn't necessarily go anywhere with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not really like, about that though. Like I thought I, I waited that that's two hours for this Mank. Come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah um I, I agree it doesn't it doesn't tackle that at all uh, so uh Jeff you you had kind things to say about Orson Welles uh uh in mank right like uh the portrayal of Orson Welles in mank yeah yeah I mean I thought it was uh you know you keep waiting for Orson Welles to come on screen and, yeah, and you yeah. it, it, he's he's the shark in jaws right he's just on a phone <laughs> a bunch of times and you keep going oh there's a Orson Welles that sounds like Orson Welles I guess Tom Burke is the actor who yeah. played it very very good impression I would say um and uh, and then he comes on uh, for just a moment, right? And and it's it's explosive and interesting. But it's you know you keep thinking, well, this is going to be about the interaction between Mank and Orson Welles, and like that's going to be the hinge upon which this whole story pivots. But it isn't, right? It isn't about that at all. It's really more about uh, Mank butting up against these more powerful men. Uh, and uh, I thought that was interesting. But you know, I, I also um, was compelled to sort of look back at. And find some interviews. I was trying to find interviews with Mankiewicz. There doesn't seem to be any, uh, at least uh, video versions of them, or excuse me, filmed versions that you can find on on YouTube or anything. But um, there's a bunch of Orson Welles, obviously, and I had a great time watching him talk about the movie. uh, You know, many decades later, and you know, he seems to have been uh, kind of a pompous ass, uh, but the interviews that I saw, he was very self-deprecating and really kind of. Um, I think he talked about it in a way, at least the, the interviews that I saw, he talked about the creation of Citizen Kane exactly as we've just been discussing filmmaking, where, you know, it, he was basically saying, 
that he made a whole bunch of mistakes because he didn't know any better. And those just turned out to be perfect for the movie, right? Those, those, they turned um, lemons into lemonade a bunch of times and he kept screwing up and he kept uh, trying things because he didn't know you're not supposed to and doing all these things that ended up kind of pushing the entire medium forward, but quite unintentionally. Like he didn't set out and go, I'm going to make the greatest film of all time. He just wanted to make the kind of film that he imagined in his head. And it turned out to be that the things he was imagining in his head, other people weren't really doing. You know, when you talk about that, Jeff, it reminded me of Christopher McQuarrie uh, doing the commentary on The Usual Suspects. Yes, I was just and thinking that. Yeah, he, yeah. yeah, and he in that movie, he was talking about how when he was making Usual Suspects, like they didn't know any, they they didn't know any of the rules. So he they had never wrote, written a screenplay before. He never yeah. written a screenplay, so they wrote. I mean, they had done. I think he had made Public Access that movie as well before that, but right. they they were so new. Or what was what was that movie they made before Usual Suspects? Um, public something. Anyway. I'll get, public access, I'll get, I think. Is it public access? Um, yes, the Brian that's Singer right. movie. That's yeah. right. Yep. So, so, uh, but he, there are all these rules you're not supposed to violate when you write a screen. You're, you're not supposed to break when you write a screenplay. Like, um, don't have your narrator be an unreliable narrator. Like, yeah. b- biggest one. Don't have the narrator be unreliable narrator. Um, they broke that rule, you know, and many other rules. And it's like when when someone does that and they come in completely pure. Uh, that's often when you get really interesting bold work, right? And yeah. we see that with Citizen Kane. We see that all throughout uh, movie history. So, well, no, I, I, I mean, I sit there with Citizen Kane and go, "How could a twenty-four-year-old make this movie?" And then, on a uh, from a certain angle, you go, "Only a twenty-four-year-old." Only a twenty-four-year-old. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A uh, couple of other things I want to mention real quick, by the way. Uh, you were mentioning the cinematography is amazing, and we should say Greg Toland shot the film. Uh, contributed a great deal to how good Citizen Kane looks and is the only other person in the cast or the, the crew that shares the director credits screen with Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, he thought his contributions were that great that he put him on the directed, you know, produced by credit screen along with him, um, which I thought was a nice little tribute because the movie looks incredible still to this day. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable how, how it's lit, how it's presented, how it uses light and shadow in the black and white medium. It's, and, it's and like a uh, quote unquote special effect, like matte paintings and yeah. like combining matte paintings with real life, you know, it's, um, yeah. it's impressive. It's impressive. So I'm, yeah. Could you I mean, imagine like today casting a bunch of 20 something actors to play, you know, characters into their sixties and seventies. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing that like, and, and multiple stages of their lives. Like it, it would seem a little ridiculous today. And it's it somehow that, I don't know about you guys. Maybe it's maybe it's because and it's an old movie and it's vaunted and I'm and I come in with all this baggage. But at no point do I watch that movie and see a 24 year old actor. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Honestly, though, Jeff, the movie that and I I'm doing a uh, series on this for my personal Patreon page. But like uh, Back to the Future, yeah, where yeah. you have uh, these actors like Crispin Glover. And Leah Thompson and Thomas yeah. Wilson portraying characters at many different ages and doing a really good job of it. Uh, but I would argue that for variety of reasons, the makeup is more convincing in Citizen Kane. Yeah. Like, and maybe it's because it's uh, shot on film and four by three aspect ratio, and and you know the resolution is not as high. But I don't even question it when I watch the film. I know whereas, it's amazing. It's an amazing whereas, thing. 
And there's fewer, I mean, even in those movies, I mean, I don't, I guess the later Back to the Future movies, but I don't know. But most of the time you're seeing Crispin Glover and then sometimes you see old Crispin Glover, right? But in Citizen Kane, the the uh, the most of the movie yes. is with the makeup on. Yeah, you know? when, when he's an older guy, right? Yes. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Um yeah. Who did so, anyway. Citizen Kane, pretty good movie. Pretty good yeah, movie. Yeah. yeah. That's, that, good. that's the bad. slash filmcast verdict on it. Um that, AM, <laughs> that AFI is pretty uh, pretty accurate on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They they, mm-hmm. they know what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, let me just ask let's close on this. It was just like I guess I'm curious when you think of Charles Foster Kane, the character, like, wh- what are you, what is your associations with that character? Like, where do you think it all went wrong for him? You know what I mean? Like, was it was he like as a character like that, uh, doomed to become like that, or do you think like, hey, because his mom like sold him off, like that's like it, he he could have had a different outcome? You, you know what I mean? Like, do you have a? I guess I'm asking you to weigh in on nature versus nurture generally. <laughs> <laughs> Just end on this existential question. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, when you think of Charles Foster Kane and the tragedy of that character, are you like, man, I wish he had just been loved as a child and he might have ended up okay? Or are I, you like, this I, I is a guy who would have like, always like going to be this way? Th- there's a hole in this movie where I really wonder what the gap was from when he was, yeah, literally sold off to when we see him next as like a young guy, I guess, who just graduated college and was like yeah. taking charge of like, like that newspaper. It's like, what it's is like over a decade of like gap in his life, basically. Right? It's almost is, yeah, he feels like 15. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of time. We don't know what his experience there was, but he basically is just out to, you know, screw over his foster father in a way. And it's, it's that contempt, I guess. And that's kind of his writing, force like his contempt for people in power and the people with money even though he was greatly helped by having the money there's a there's a lot going on here but um you know when we talk about martin eden which is another movie that is uh, currently streaming and rentable now it follows a similar path and i kind of want to see like where where people come down with that too um because these stories of seeing people rise up um I, I don't know. There's there's a lot we can read into these things. So yeah, and that's going to be a good discussion too, and we'll relate to this. Uh, Devinger is referring to a foreign film, Martin Eden, that is available for uh, streaming video on demand or video on demand streaming. That uh, is is probably like I maybe like four or five times a year, Devinger, you really get excited about. You're really like you got to watch. You got to watch this. It's not it's not frequent, but. Uh, when it does happen, you're very intense about it. Martin Eden is one yeah. of those films this year. Martin Eden is is a adaptation of a Jack London novel, so it's really weird. It is an Italian movie that is, you know, a distillation of this American, this very famous American thing. So, yeah, worth watching. But we'll talk more about that. Jeff, any any closing thoughts on the character of Citizen Kane? Yeah, I mean, I think the movie comes down pretty clearly on one of those sides, right? I think, I think the movie is, is positing that he's constantly trying to fill this bottomless pit of love that was never given to him, right? That it was, he was plucked away that moment, you know, where he was joyous and happy playing with the sled. It's such a, again, an amazing shot of these three actors playing a scene. And then in the deep background, yes. you can see through the window, the boy playing through the entire sequence it's just an extraordinary composition of a shot. Um, they're deciding his fate as he is like blithely having a yeah. grand old time. Um, and I, I think the movie is clearly 
coming down on the on the in the position of like had he been loved he wouldn't turn into this thing that he becomes and i'm inclined to agree and and you know it's a whole other discussion that gets us in, you know we could spend two more hours on or a week or whatever but it, you know i feel like there is this push and pull of you know does he just become a sort of ordinary person uh, is great does greatness demand that trauma like is he driven to do all these quote unquote great things these earth moving things in order to quench a thirst that can't be quenched right and i i often have thought about that you know is it possible to achieve greatness or even strive for it when you are a pretty well adjusted person you know mm -hmm. i don't know i don't know does does there need to be damage to uh to create that sense of needing to, to that pushing yourself and striving for the pinnacle uh is is that just a symptom of not having something as a child i, I don't know all right well i think we can wrap it up there but um those are That's why i'm depriving my kids of as much joy as possible <laughs> <laughs> there's a great old mr show there's a great old mr show sketch about a uh a program you can enter your kids in you know it's like i i'm teaching my kid to be an alcoholic i want him to be a great writer you know that kind of thing like i'm abraham lincoln and my father touched me in the butthole that's why i'm on your penny you know that's, that's, that's... I, I i guess i would say that there's definitely people who are well adjusted who are successful right but um the que i guess the question is whether this guy could have been well adjusted and successful. Right, right. You know? Right. So, yeah. Anyway, I think we can wrap it up there, but appreciate you gents checking this movie out and uh, doing a little bit of movie history with me, uh, watching Mank as well. Uh, it, it, I really found it enriching. So mm -hmm. thanks, guys. And thanks to our listeners at patreon.com slash film podcast for making episodes like this possible. We hope you'll back us. Uh, free episodes of The After Dark on the main feed through the end of 2020. Uh, and then starting 2021, it will be the only way uh, patreon.com slash film podcast will be the only way to consume episodes of the after dark uh, so we hope you will check us out there thanks for listening and we'll see you later